This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Lee Green, and this is episode 186. I sat down with Samantha Cox, the founder and CEO of Flouse. Flouse is the world's first eco-friendly electric flosser that uses sonic vibrations to make flossing as quick and easy as brushing your teeth. I think you'll love hearing Samantha's story from growing up in Orange County to creating such an innovative product and the challenges that she faced along the way, especially with manufacturers. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Sam. How are you? Thank you so much for joining the show today. I'm excited to hear your story in building Flouse. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here and get to chat. Great. We met at the FounderMade event in New York. When was that, actually? That was a few months ago. It was a few months ago. I feel like everything's just flying by, but it was... um definitely in the middle of summer. An amazing event too. Very fun. Yeah. There's a lot of great brands there. I love Founder Made. And it was great meeting you and seeing your electric flosser that you've created. So I'm excited to hear you know, your story, but I guess let's start from the very beginning. Where are you from originally? I was born and raised in Southern California. Grew up in a small beach town down in South Orange County called San Clemente. And then I went to USC for undergrad, ended up going to NYU Law School immediately after, and then eventually found my way back to California. Great. So before we kind of get into school and stuff like that, let's talk about childhood. What kind of kid were you? What did your parents do? Did you have siblings? What were the dynamics growing up? Definitely. So I had a, a pretty nuclear family. So my mom, my dad, and my sister and I. My sister and I are only 13 months apart or otherwise known as Irish twins. So we are extremely close. I am the older sister and she, she's amazing. And my parents really focused on making sure we grew up to be best friends. And an amazing piece of advice my mom received from her aunt was you know, to make sure that we each had our own separate quality time with our parents and we we're each involved in different sort of like sports and activities. So we were never competing with each other. But yeah, I mean, I was always like, I had a great childhood, super supportive parents. My dad um, did logistics consulting. My mom also used to be a consultant, then became a self-help book author and really just my sister nor I would be where we are today without all my mom's support. She pretty much sacrificed everything for us to be successful. And in terms of how I was as a kid, my mom always likes to tell me she was like, you were just the most joyful kid, always smiling, always dancing. And 
quite honestly, I feel like I'm the same. I'm always dancing and smiling. So I had a really, really good childhood. It was really nice. And what do you mean by your your mom sacrificed a bunch for you guys to be successful? What does that mean? So my mom was extremely career driven. Um, she grew up learning the importance of education and, and being an independent woman, not feeling like you had to rely on your significant other financially, even for security. So she actually, she went to UCLA for undergrad, got her MBA from USC and went straight into like the corporate working environment. And she actually ended up meeting my dad at work. And so it's really interesting. After my mom had me, she went back to work. And then after my mom had my sister, not even after, like while my mom was pregnant, the firm fired her. And obviously this was all before like, laws that have gone into place to protect against that sort of discrimination. But yeah, and so my mom then just really focused on raising my sister and I, I mean, she always says two under two is just, she said we were crazy together running, like jumping off the walls. But more so as we started to grow up, my mom just really, she just invested so much time and energy in my sister and I like Drive. My sister was a really competitive soccer player. So my mom would drive everywhere for my sister to take her to soccer practice and, and get us private coaching if we needed it. And I remember, you know, to the extent I would like struggle in a, in a subject in school, my mom would go get me a tutor. And like, it was always, she was just always so, so supportive. And she just did everything she could to make sure that my sister and I were as successful as possible while definitely like putting herself second. You know, she invested all of her time and energy into into my sister and I. I see. So she didn't work. You're saying she didn't work very much. No, so um, not exactly. And well, she was a self-help book author as well. So she actually started writing. She sold like almost, I think, a hundred thousand books. She, I mean, it was amazing. And they were sold all over the world and in so many different languages. And my mom would get incredible letters from people writing in saying like, this helped change my life. And yeah, my mom is incredible. As she always What's says that her so one one was called Finding Time, Finding Peace. And then I forget the oh my gosh, she she's gonna hate that. I don't remember all of them. But <laughs> there's multiple, but finding time, finding peace. Yeah. So about like living a happy life, also like time practice, time management. And to be honest though, I really think my mom could have gone on and written a book about two girls and help like everything she did given where my sister and I have have ended up and my mom still to this day like helps all of our friends if they're applying for grad school or anything like she's always helping people that's awesome great and so you said your sister was really into soccer what kind of things were you into and do you see any kind of traits looking back that you were entrepreneurial as a kid oh absolutely so (laughs) So I tested out every single sport possible and I was really drawn more towards the creative activities. So I did end up playing very competitive golf. I was a big golfer, competitive, yeah, did AJGA, varsity in high school, got recruited collegiately, but I was really drawn towards theater and dancing and and art class. And I've always been just a true creative, even though, you know, I have very strong analytical capabilities, but I've always had this creative side to me. And even when I was in my like early, early teens, I remember my friend and I would go and we'd like buy little tank tops and we'd go to Michael's and buy like 
fringe and glitter and stuff. And we would be like trying to design our own clothes to which we thought like, oh, we would sell, but obviously no one was wearing these things (laughs) other than us. But definitely from a very young age, I had always had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, but I didn't really tap into it until I was in college. Interesting. What were some of the first jobs you had, I guess, before and during college? Yeah. So I have always been an extremely independent person. So I would say that that's one of the differences between my sister and I, while my parents were oftentimes away at my sister's tournaments and games, I would be home and also like working. So I had a job at, I wanted the job. My, my parents don't require me to get one, but I wanted one um, for that independence. And I worked at Rip Curl, the surf shop. That was like the cool job to have during high school. If anyone knows San Clemente, it's, it's right across from like lowers and uppers and trussels. And so we get all the surfers. I'm not a big surfer at all, but it was such a fun place to work. And that's really where I was learning like inventory and customer service and actually working with a manager and corporate and what that meant. So that was really my first job. And I held on to that for about like three years and it was really, it was really fun. And then during college, I did like little things here and there. Again, I just always enjoyed having kind of like my own little salary. So it was actually during my first year at USC, I worked in the sports department and I would help like set up like the game, the soccer games. I would help set up things for the the volleyball games. I'd run around and like catch the balls when, when they were practicing or, and I, at some games I was even, I was a girl like during the basketball games with like the sweat sweeper, where I would like run onto the court and like sweep the sweat and rub off and run off. And I've always been so goal oriented. I remember I was at some of these games. I was sitting there and I was watching the spirit leaders, which are essentially like USC's cheerleaders. And I was like, I want to do that. That looks fun. And then, you know, then of course the next year I auditioned, I got it. So then I was a spirit leader after that, that wasn't paid, but it was the coolest experience of getting to cheer in front of like a hundred thousand people at the Coliseum and everything like that. And then honestly, for the rest of college, I mostly, my jobs were primarily during my summer internships. And then I would do some research fellows all related to law. So I would work at a law firm. I worked at, I did some research work at the USC law school. I was an undergrad. So I then started really kind of like gearing towards law and like finding opportunities to get experience. And so what made you want to be, it sounds like you kind of wanted to be a lawyer. Where did that idea come from? And what did you want to be when you were little? Like when you grew up and you had dreams when you were little of what you wanted to be, what was it and how did that change? Again, this is going to probably be a story my mom does not like hearing, but I grew up with the family of doctor lawyer. That was always it. You're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. You know, I went the lawyer route. My sister is now a doctor. So both very on that path. But I remember when I was really young, we, my sister and I actually had like a life coach when we were like in our, gosh, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, really young. And I remember I went, I talked to him, this guy, and I was like, Oh, like, I don't know. I really love fashion. I love being creative. And my, and the coach was like, you could do anything you want. Like you should pursue that. I came home and I told my mom and I never saw him again. So it was very I like she was writing gonna... self-help books here. I mean, what do I you know. mean? That doesn't make any sense. I know it was, it's just, you know, she really grew up her from an immigrant family who really emphasized the power of education of, of being a doctor or a lawyer. That was just kind of how 
everyone in my family was. So when I went to USC, I actually thought I was going to be more going the medical route. I thought I was going to go into dentistry. I had been really involved with Operation Smile all throughout high school, just drawn towards it. And it's an amazing organization. It was so incredible working with them. But um, I thought I wanted to actually go into dentistry. And then I took first year biology and I was like, no, this is not it. I do not enjoy this. And then I took a first year psychology class and I was like, oh my gosh, I love this. This is so interesting. I love understanding how people think, how they tick. And then, yeah, once I kind of decided, you know, the doctor route wasn't for me, I was like, okay, I guess it might be a lawyer. And I started taking some poli sci classes, pre-law classes, and I did really well. And um, all, you know, everything's very logical and patterns. And so I kind of just went down that route, kind of just feeling like those were the steps ahead of me, not really thinking like, what did I actually want to do. It was more so like, okay, this is what I've been told I should be doing. So I'm just going to go do that. Yeah. And so at what point did you realize that you are actually in control of your own happiness and you need to follow what you truly want for yourself? It was actually while I was practicing law. So I, after USC, I went straight through to NYU law. I had an incredible experience there, but the whole time I was there, I was also trying to take courses at uh, NYU's business school. I was really drawn to fashion law class or the pattern here of fashion in the business courses. And I would con- I was constantly coming up with ideas and it wasn't until I was actually practicing. So then I, I actually moved back to California and practiced for four years after passing the bar. And there was this moment where, I mean, I was just working a hundred hour weeks, 80 to hundred hour weeks. I was sleeping under my desk. I was really taking a huge toll on my physical and emotional mental well-being. And I remember I'd walk home and I'd be like, I have worked so hard to get here and I'm so unhappy and I feel so unfulfilled. And it's almost this sunk cost fallacy where you feel like, okay, I've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars and I have this debt with me. I've done all the all this work. I have all these expectations and you just kind of keep going. And I was so unhappy, but I remember there was this moment where we were actually creating flower bouquets for Galentine's at the firm. So all the female call associates that we we're all doing it for each other. And I was working on a big diligence memo. And I remember I took a little break to create this flower bouquet and it probably took me 20 minutes to make it. I then went straight back into my diligence memo and it was in that moment that I sat there and I was like, oh my gosh, I just got more happiness and intrinsic value from making a flower bouquet than I've had at one second at this job. And that's when I was like, this, I I have to leave. I was like, I am too much of a creative to be to be doing this. And the partners were incredible. They were so supportive. They did try to help me find ways to find creativity in what I was doing. It just wasn't the creativity that I was looking for. And so it became really clear to me that, you know, I had already had my idea for Flaus at that time, but I was like the opportunity for me to get to flex my analytical capabilities as well as my creativity. I I was ready. I was like, I can do this. It's funny how a f- something as small as putting together a mm-hmm. flower bouquet makes you that much more happier 
and you're like, well, this is so dramatically different. And why am I spending so much of my time doing something I don't like? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so how did you break it to mom saying, I don't think I want to do this anymore? To be quite honest, my parents, especially my mom's my best friend. So I would talk to her all the time coming back from work and she was always helping me like think like strategically and, you know, cause every, it was definitely like swimming with a, in a shark tank and at the firm I was at, which it was an amazing experience, but intense. And she knew how unhappy I was. She was definitely concerned for me. I mean, I would have, when we were closing deals, I would pull five all nighters in eight days to the point where I was no longer like functioning. And I was still like, I had to type with one finger because my brain couldn't like process anymore. Was this just part of the culture of working there? Was everybody doing that? Yes. And I think that's just, yeah, I was at one of the most prestigious big law firms and I was in mergers and acquisitions, M&A, which is by far the most grueling group. And I had no idea going into it. (laughs) Of course, now looking back, I'm like, I probably should had done a different practice group, but everyone was doing it. And it was almost seen as like a badge of honor to in they, one of the sayings was the reward for good work was more work. It was a pie eating contest. So it never ended. And so when I actually, my parents were actually pretty concerned for my health and it got to the point where they were like, do we need to step in and like say something? I'm like, I'm an adult. I got, I got this, but when I told them, I have to admit they weren't surprised at all. I have always had this entrepreneurial spirit. I have come up with so many different ideas before, but none of them that were ever worth pursuing. You know, you just kind of come up with ideas throughout your daily life. But then when I came across Flouse and it just dropped right into my lap, and then it just kind of just perfectly coincided that I was at an inflection point. I had already been at Scadden for four years. Most people don't even last that long. So I got my notches in my belt. I had had enough experience and my parents were actually just so supportive and excited for me. And they just want, they just wanted me to be happy. So how did you come up with the idea? Why floss? Yeah. You know, like where did it come from? Yes. Yes. So, um, yes. So it was actually after a dentist appointment. So I had a dentist appointment in my calendar while I was at the firm and I, at the time, I was an amazing twice a day toothbrusher with my electric toothbrush, horrible flosser. So about a week leading up to the dentist appointment, I start vigorously flossing so that when I got in the dentist chair and she asked, oh, you know, Sam, have you been flossing? My answer was, of course. And right away, she knew I was a liar, blood everywhere. I left with a massive dental bill. It was shocking how many cavities I had. And I also have a huge sweet tooth. Both my sister and I, my mom says that's one of her biggest regrets with us. She just fed us sugar when we were younger. So we're just a lot of sugar anyways. And so I came home and I thought, I hate flossing. I know how incredibly important it is. And I really value my smile. So I need to get on top of this. Well, I love using my electric toothbrush. Why don't I just go buy an electric flosser? And I actually went online to go purchase one. And I was shocked to discover nothing like this existed. I could not believe it. I was like, wait, this is so obvious. No one is doing this. And I did hundreds of hours of research, could not find anything. And then in the weeks following, I started talking to my friends at the firm. I would like go into their offices, like shut the door. And I'd be like, so like, tell me about your oral care habits. And everyone's like, what? And that's where I really discovered, oh my gosh, flossing is a massive pain point for most people. And I was like, okay, I, I, it dropped 
right into my lap. I never thought it was going to be oral care. I never thought I'd be doing consumer electronics, anything like that. But that's where the idea came from. That's awesome. And at what point was there a moment or conversation? Probably you've had you had numerous conversations is what it sounds like to kind of validate the idea. But when was the final conversation where you're like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do this. This is definitely what I need to start doing now. Like, when did you start moving? Yeah, so great question. So before I wanted to invest a single dollar into Flouse, I was like, I need to get some sort of external validation into this idea other than my friends and family. So I actually sent out a SurveyMonkey. Um, SurveyMonkey has this incredible resources where you could pay about like $1,000 to send out a 15-question survey. I got 600 responses from across the US and different demographics and age groups and I asked about people's flossing habits. What, what are they currently using? How often are they flossing? How do they feel about flossing? What are the major pain points? Just to validate that, that this is a pain point. And then I explained the idea, just you know, a couple sentences. And it was like, is this something you'd be interested in buying? And then how much? And I just sat back and I said, you know what? I just want to see how this turns out. And if it's not as positive as I thought it would be, then I was like, I'm not going to continue this further. But it ended up being just so extremely validating that I was like, wow. And it was actually in that survey, I came across one of my first, I had a hypothesis that I was creating flouse for non-flossers like myself. But that survey was the first time I found counter data to that, that the most person that was most interested in a product like flouse was the daily flosser. It was a person that's already doing it and they want a better, quicker, easier way to do it. That was the first time I, and that has only been validated since. Um, So that was really the first moment that I was like, okay, this is something I'm going to do. And it wasn't until I decided to launch an Indiegogo campaign that I was like, that really forced me to leave the firm. I was like, this cannot go public while I'm still at the firm. So that really forced me to essentially break up with my law firm. And in some ways, it I almost felt like I had Stockholm syndrome, like where I was scared, like I felt indebted to my captors. And it felt like a breakup. But at the same time, as soon as I left, I, it, I've now been out of there for two and a half years. I've not looked back for a single second. Yeah, that's awesome. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about, but Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You'll be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. So the Survey Monkey, I think you said you sent it out to a thousand people. So it was about six hundred people. Six hundred, yeah. So how did you choose six hundred? You know, it's like how do you know how many people to send a survey out to? Yeah. 
So SurveyMonkey, um, well, first of all, I did tons of research about like what is the big enough audience that you're going to have like so you can get some sort of reliable results. Right. And then SurveyMonkey also helps you identify like based on how many questions you want, based on like I was going really broad general, you can really hone in to be like, I only want to survey men on the in coastal cities. And then it could probably be like a smaller subset, but because I was going so broad, they suggested somewhere in between like the 500 and 750 range. And so I just picked 600. And I also had a budget for myself. I was like, I don't want to spend more than $1,000 on this. So that that fell like right into there. That's awesome. I've heard a lot of founders talk about using surveys early on to validate the concepts that they have. It's really important to do that early on. And so with the Indiegogo campaign, what was the thought process behind that? Sounds like you just needed some funding to kind of make the product perhaps. And how much were you looking to raise and how did the campaign go? Yeah, definitely. Great question. So I would say throughout my journey, and I think for most other founders, you'll notice that as you're going out trying to get like raise money or trying to get people involved, you're going to notice that people are looking for certain benchmarks. And so when you're really early on, having a survey was sufficient. But then after my survey, it became, okay, well, have you run like a little Facebook marketing campaign and done an email wait list? So then that was my next exercise I did. I was like, who would sign up for this? And then that went really well. I raised a little bit of money off of the back of that. But then I ran into when I really wanted to go out and, and raise some money to invest in engineering, I needed, I was trying to raise about like 200,000, 250 at the time. The feedback I was getting from potential investors was, well, we want to see that people are willing to put their credit card down. And I was like, well, I don't have a product yet. I need to manufacture this and create it. So I was really hesitant against doing, I was really hesitant about doing an Indiegogo or crowdfunding campaign at all. I had heard some horror stories. Obviously, Kickstarter and Indiegogo have been around for quite a while, and it's a hyper, hyper saturated marketplace. And a lot of these backers have been burned. So it's just a really difficult experience. And if you don't, if you don't succeed, it's on there forever. So there are a lot of failed or a lot of successful startups that had failed Indiegogo campaigns. Quip was one. I think Peloton also had one. So it's very, very interesting, but it's just on there. And so that was kind of a little bit of a fear of mine. Like, oh gosh, if this doesn't go well, like I'm going to have to rebrand the whole thing. But when I started thinking about it more, I was like, okay, I have two options because I don't have product. I can pre-sell on my own website or I can pre-sell on Indiegogo. And I decided to go with Indiegogo for a couple of specific reasons. One is that Customers on Indiegogo understand that they're buying the first generation of a product. They understand that they are backing something innovative and that's being created. Most direct-to-consumer online customers, probably due to like Amazon and, and whatnot, expect to receive a perfect product right when they get it. And so that was one of the first factors. I was like, okay, we're creating this from scratch hardware. Um, it, it's very much an iterative process. And so I knew the first version was not going to be perfect. So that was one of the reasons. And then the next one too was Indiegogo customers were really used to a long wait time in between placing their order and then actually receiving the product. They're used to waiting six months to a year. Whereas again, direct consumer customers are much, their expectation is to re receive something in a matter of days or a week. 
And so that was another factor that I thought, okay, because of these two things, it just makes sense to do an Indiegogo campaign. And what I actually went and did, and um, very methodically so, is I actually went both on Kickstarter and Indiegogo, and I looked up products in in parallel verticals. So like electric toothbrushes, electric razors, things like that. And I went and I found the most successful campaigns. And what I noticed was a pattern on all of them. And when you actually scrolled to the bottom of their campaigns, you would see that they all worked with a crowdfunding agency. There's about five of them, five top ones. And they were, you ju- I just saw the same one. So that really tipped me off. I was like, okay, I think I need to go out and talk to some of these agencies And so I ended up interviewing the top five and it became very clear to me that because Indiegogo is so hypersaturated, these backers are are on high alert for fraudulent campaigns and the marketing funnel is so unique for Indiegogo. You're, You're targeting a very specific consumer. So I have never purchased something on Kickstarter or Indiegogo and I'm thinking I'm selling to me as a customer. So I'm like, if I saw this ad on Instagram and then you click it and it takes me to an Indiegogo, I would bounce. I'd be like, nope. And so what I learned is that working with a crowdfunding agency is really critical to having a successful campaign. They just understand like who this target audience is, how you market to them, how you create that FOMO effect. And so Long story short, we ended up working with an amazing agency called Rain Factory. We've been working with them for a while now. They're they're incredible. Um, and we had an extremely successful campaign. So we did about $360,000 in pre-orders in about eight weeks. We finished in the top 1% of campaigns ever on Indiegogo. And it just really set the ball rolling for us in terms of like kicking off with manufacturing production and then being able to fundraise off the back of it. So we did about $360,000 in pre-orders. And then I was able to raise about another million dollars from investors on the back of it. That's awesome. Because that's a really you yeah. know validating thing, right? Because these backers are also customers. It's great marketing. Um, it's interesting. Great that, marketing. You know, I've had so many founders on this podcast talk about you know, what it takes to put together a successful crowdfunding campaign. And not one of them has admitted that they work with an agent, (laughs) except for you. So I appreciate that you are being transparent about that. That's what I want from this show. And it's sad that it's not shared enough. So it's good to know that there are some top agencies out there that help make these campaigns so successful. I mean, it it makes sense, right? Like as a founder, you can only do so many things. Who has any experience? No one has any experience on doing a crowdfunding campaign. You're doing it for the first time. Hitting it out of the ballpark is like, I was always so curious, you know, what really was going on behind the scenes there? Because there's a lot involved. So it makes sense. So much, so much involved. I mean, you had to do like about a a six-week lead generation campaign. We collected 9,000 email leads going into it because Indiegogo, crowdfunding is all about the FOMO. You want to start off really strong. And so we had to do that. We also you know, had to create our, our first assets with videos and lifestyle photography and then do pricing. Like, how are we going to price this? And how are we positioning the product? This was like our first time. And again, just the funnel is just so unique for a on on a crowdfunding campaign like this. And so, yeah, I mean, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. I know a couple, I have a couple of founder friends that have done their own campaigns. 
but it is so hit or miss. And it is a, a massive, massive, massive time investment. Whereas you could just go work with a professional where they pump these things out and they know, and they also have special relationships with Indiegogo or with Kickstarter. So you get extra benefits and perks that we just wouldn't have had access to. Yeah. Makes total sense. <laughs> Makes yeah. total sense. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. And so of amazing. Congrats. You've got this 360K at pre-orders in eight weeks. Great. I mean, that's an easy little fundraise. It sounds like easy, right? But I'm sure it was hard working with getting all the assets together and working with this agency. And there's an investment in that, I'm sure, as well. Huge. Yeah. So you in eight weeks, you get this 360K of pre-orders. Investors obviously love that. This is You've got pre-orders to talk about. And you're able to raise, I think you said, a million dollars from some angel investors, I assume, or any funds? Yes. Yes, all angels. So prior to doing Indiegogo, and, and we don't really, you know, at least from a financial perspective, we, we didn't really view Indiegogo as like an investment money coming in. It was like, this was all going towards R&D and setting up the manufacturing and production line. Consumer electronic hardware is a capital intensive business. I oftentimes am like, why couldn't I have thought of Squatty Potty or Scrub Daddy? I'm like, consumer electronics, Sam, why? And so it is capital intensive. So all that money really went straight into manufacturing and production. Prior to having that campaign, I had raised about $250,000 from my colleagues at Skadden. My first 15 investors were all Skadden attorneys. Yeah. And then this last a million was all friends and family. So I just went out to my network, went out to uh, my my boss at my law firm invested. I went out to just people that I've known over the years who had always known that I was a very entrepreneurial go-getter. Yeah, I was able, it was shot, it was amazing and validating and honestly kind of scary taking on, a, you know, almost one and a half million dollars for my friends and my family. I was just like, you feel the pressure and like, it kind of adds this extra like dynamic to the friendship. And so that was something that was really interesting that I had to learn to work through. I had to work through it with a coach to be like, you know, they could have put this money elsewhere, but they put it with me and I'm going to be the best steward of this. And so I was really like trying to shift my mindset to being like, you know what, this is actually an opportunity for them to get to invest in me. Yeah, exactly. But I can understand, you know, taking money and it being your first startup and you're like, oh, I hope exactly. this goes well. You know, but it, I mean, I think most angel investors and friends and family that are, you know, making those kind of bets, they're backing you and your your ability and their belief in you. But at the same time, there's so many things that you can't control, market dynamics and things that just happen. So hopefully, you know, all investors, especially at that early stage, should know it's it's really a lottery ticket or just, you know, it's a, it's a high risk situation, but that's the game. So what happened after that? You raised this million dollars and then you must have gotten the product made. And what was it like to ship product for the first time? Oh, well, keep in mind that this is all happening during COVID. So I launched this Indiegogo campaign in April 2021. I was running around Southern California at the time trying to put 3D printed prototypes in people's mouths mid-COVID. Everyone's like, get away from me, crazy lady. So <laughs> I would like go down. I lived in Manhattan Beach at the time. And I would like go down to the Strand with like a $10 Starbucks gift card and be like, will you try this? And they're like, no. And I was like, okay, I, I'm 
probably have to go through prototyping with my friends who are going to trust me that I'm sanitizing these devices. I'm not going to lie. I was like driving from my friends' houses in LA being like, is this going to be a super spreader event? Like, am I just spreading COVID everywhere? Luckily, we, we were in the clear. Nothing happened like that. We were sanitizing everything. But yeah, we went straight into... The, the manufacturing process. So creating iterations of the product, going through a black box prototype to a fully functioning prototype, and then getting up the tooling line and, you know, making all those iterative changes and making pivots as we are going and deciding, you know, okay, scratch that. We don't need that for our MVP. And I think a lot of people get really focused on all these like features you can add to things. But when you're coming out with your beta product for us, we were so focused on the MVP. The most important thing was that this thing had the sonic vibration. It had a floss head that was easily reusable. And that way we were just really focused on the thesis that just like your electric toothbrush, an electric flosser would help make flossing easier, quicker, and more comfortable. But I'm not going to lie, you know, I think one of the things that was really tough about doing this was that because of COVID, I wasn't able to go over to China to actually meet my contract manufacturers. And that's a huge part of the business culture there is actually having that face-to-face interaction. So I always felt like I had a little bit more of a distant relationship from our Flouse One contract manufacturers. And I would say that was a bit challenging. And and we were also in the midst of the supply chain crisis and the crazy freights. And luckily, because we were so small, we could be so nimble. It was it was such a blessing in disguise that we were just so little that we were able to easily shift and pivot. And we didn't need like hundreds of thousands of PBCs or anything like that. And so we made it through and being able to ship out the product to the customers was just such a huge moment of being like, this product is now out in the wild, living in people's bathrooms, and just receiving the feedback and for the most part, quite positive. But we also uh, came up against a lot of really tough obstacles as well with our our first manufacturing run. Hmm. So what kind of challenges? Let's dive into some of the hard stuff, you know, because it's not a smooth cruise. Let's hear some of the bumps. Oh, gosh. Okay. I would say the biggest one we had that we just could and still, you know, we're now we've now moved through this inventory, but we ended up having so our initial PO was for about 10,000, 15,000 units. We did the first 5,000 to our Indiegogo customers and then had another 10,000 that we were just going to be selling through to continue learning. And we had about a 15% defective rate, which is extremely high. You Anything above a 4% is a catastrophic failure. We had a 15% and what was happening was how Flouse One was manufactured was there was a neck piece and a handle piece and then the little head up top. So there's three pieces. And during the assembly process, they would be kind of jamming together the neck into the handle. And apparently too much pressure was being applied during that, that a hairline fracture would occur in the neck of the device. And it was invisible to the human eye. You could not see it. And so there were some that would appear over time. And so during our QC process, they'd be taken out. So we identified the problem because they would just appear like over a couple of days. They weren't like that initially, then boom. And so we would take those out and we thought, okay, well, 
they're not showing up anymore. We must be good. We then sh- we sh- then ship them stateside, and then you open them up with your three PL, and it's like, oh my god, there's a lot more of these. So we think we get rid of the ones that we because ha- it's being jostled as it's as it's being sent stateside. So the cracks are appearing. So we see them, and we're like, okay, move them out, second quality. Then we have our other ones. And they all, to the human eye, look totally fine. They've passed QC at the factory. They've passed QC at the 3PL. So we're like, okay, it's all good. And then they would get shipped to customers. And some of them would just, the the fracture would appear during shipping or during use. So literally customers would get our product and open it up. And it was a decapitated flouse. Because of the hairline fracture in the neck, that it, it would make the neck part loose and it would come off the handle. And it was just so stressful and frustrating. And it's like, how can this happen? And the problem is, is that it passed through QC. So now we're stuck with this inventory. You And it's really hard to negotiate with the contract manufacturer that I essentially have no relationship with. And this is one of the mistakes that I made was that my Flouse One engineer he wedged himself in between the contract manufacturer and and Flouse. So I had to go through him for everything. And that created a lot of like issues and miscommunications and, you know, all these different things. And basically the contract manufacturer was like, listen, like we'll give you a big discount on your next PO. And we're like, we're not ordering any more units with you. Like, absolutely not. This is like, it was, yeah, so 15%. And so that really led us to invest in customer service. So making sure that like, we are showing up to the customers, we are giving them, a, you know, we were giving them their refund, we were sending them a new device, most people really wanted their flow. So we'd send a new one. Um, but as you could imagine, like that would start eating into our profits, right? So we have about a 75% gross margin on flouse. And when you're having to ship out new product, not only the cogs of that, but also the lost potential sale of those units, it really, it definitely had a detrimental economic impact. That being said, I have a lot of mentors in the space and specifically consumer electronic hardware because it's it's a little bit of a beast. And they've all told me that this is totally normal. They're like, this is par for the course. This happens. You've got to get the product out there. It's good enough and start getting that customer feedback. But I would say that was one of that has been one of our biggest challenges that we had to overcome was getting faulty inventory. Yeah, that's a challenge. I've heard that a few times yeah. from other founders. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's definitely part of the course, especially <sighs> in the first round of product. It's always yes. a little bumpy. So and I imagine it must have you I don't know how much time did it take to kind of switch manufacturers, find a new, you know, place that you could trust that wouldn't be doing this, making the same mistake, such a headache. How long did it take for you to kind of solve the problem? Yeah. So, you know, quite honestly, I we really felt like not only was the contract manufacturer not the right partner, but our engineer wasn't the right partner as well. Like there were just so many mistakes. I I constantly felt stressed out. Like I was scared about what decisions were being made. I didn't, I, there were too many mistakes, lack of attention to detail. And I just felt so nervous. And it was clear that that original engineer did a really good job of of product design and helping us validate the idea. But it got to the point where they were in over their heads and it was obvious. So 
we actually decided, you know, we're not going to invest any more into this beta product. We or we already have it out there. We have more than enough units to be collecting all this data on. To and then we pivoted to Flaus to our hard launch product. It's Flaus two, and we're like, let's take all of these learnings and roll them into our next product, the next iteration of it. And we went and we actually got a new um, engineering partner who I had been wanting to work with from the very beginning. I went and I found all my favorite electric toothbrush startups and I like reverse engineered their PR to find out what engineering agencies they had been working with. And one of the ones that I found that I loved was Doris Dev. They're based out of a Dumbo, New York, incredible, incredible team. And we were just in the early days too young to work with them and we, we couldn't really afford it. But being able to come to them with Flaus 1 learnings and then be able to move that and iterate into Flaus 2 it was just an it has been an incredible process they're incredible partners it, it's such a 180 experience to not constantly be like i'm i'm nervous and scared they're just absolute professionals and they went and they found our incredible contract manufacturing partner so someone that's just um really really high quality here's another learning i had was with flaus 1 our engineer decided that i think one of the biggest risks is about doing anything in China is is the risk of rip off of your IP. And so not only were we filing patents, both in the US and China, but our engineer suggested breaking up our product process. So one uh, manufacturer or supplier would have the plastics, another one would have our electronics, another one would do assembly. So it was all split up. But the problem was that what that is that that is too many points for failure to happen. And so what we would notice is that we had such a variance in the product we were receiving because it wasn't coming from one source. And so with Flaus 2, we did not make that mistake. And now we're with one manufacturer. They have experience in electric toothbrushes, floss picks, and Doris Dev went out and actually did the sourcing for us and brought us the proposals. And I'm super excited. I'm going to fly out to China and get to meet them in person, but they've already been showing up. And just the quality of the product that we're seeing right now, we're going to be launching Flaus 2 in October. So in less than a month, and it's just 180 experience and, and in quality. We're just so, so excited. And it's all, you know, makes it worth it, but it it's an expensive mistake to make. Yep. There's a lot of expensive, I think, mistakes that happen. Right. So what can you, you know, before we wrap up here, I know we're running out of time. What's some final advice you have for entrepreneurs out there thinking about maybe they have an idea, they're thinking about taking the leap into taking it more seriously, or maybe they're in the trenches right now building their startup. What advice do you have for them? And then final question is what's next for Flaus? I know you've got Flaus 2 coming soon in October, which is exciting. Um, if there's anything else, let us know. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's so there's so many, so many lessons I've I've learned. I think one of the first things is that there's no better investment than an investment in yourself. So getting to invest in yourself and getting to build something that you're passionate about, whether you know you're feeling stuck at that corporate job is just it's just so worthwhile and it, it's life is short. It's worthwhile to take that risk and take that leap of faith and your job will always be there. You can always go back. Also something I would, I would say to other founders are in the midst of, you know, seeking product market fit or validation is get, get your product out there, get it out there. I think it's so easy to be afraid that someone's going to steal your idea and, and run forward with it. But the chances of someone 
having the time, energy, or and passion to create what you're doing is so, 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 so small. And it is so much more valuable to be building with customer feedback than to build in secrecy to only find out that customers don't want what you're building. So I think that's that's a really big piece of feedback. And then I think I know that the last one I would say is that finding mentors is just so important. And I went and I made sure I was finding people who had walked this path before me. So, and I would just cold message people on LinkedIn and you'd be so surprised how willing people are to help you. And, you know, especially as a first time founder, you can learn from other people's successes and failures. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. And I really think that that's helped me get to where I am because I've been able to avoid some big mistakes. Obviously, I've made my own, but I've been able to avoid some big mistakes and also find some really key ingredients to success that I think would have taken a lot longer had I not found these mentors. That's great. All wonderful points of advice. Thank you so much, Sam, for joining us on the show today. Really appreciate you sharing your awesome story. Yeah, thank you so much. And just to like close out when you ask about what's next for Flaus. Yeah, so we're launching Flaus 2 this October. We are so excited. This is really our hard market launch. We've been in beta for the last year. So um, a little bit more under the radar, but we are doing like full court press with PR, influencers, affiliate, all of that. So Flaus 2 is coming out this October. We can't wait. Keep an eye out for other really exciting color drops, product drops. We have a really exciting roadmap ahead. And I think our goal is to just really create this oral beauty space. So you're going to see us keep innovating in that and trying to bring, you know, the investment of in skincare essentially to your smile. And so we're just so excited for what's to come to continue trailblazing into this space and and being as innovative as possible. So definitely keep an eye out. It's, 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 it's an exciting time. We're feeling really, really excited. That's awesome. Love it. We'll keep an eye out. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.